1: Insults are ten a penny when it comes to professional wrestling, but really vicious personal insults, well, they stay with wrestlers for a very long time. This list uh, was written by our very own Michael Sidgwick, who actually joins me now. Sidgwick, just come here for a sec, mate. Sorry, sorry to bother you, right? So he's written this list, but I want to really put across to people that it's not just about insults, it's about getting really personal and, and vicious with it. Could you just give us an example off the top of your head of something vicious you might say about... I don't know, me, for example. Wilbourne, you failed dismally in radio because people could sense through the airwaves how insufferable you are in real life. Yeah. Perfect. now that. Thanks, mate. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> with that in mind, I'm Adam Wilbourne from What Culture, and these are the 10 most vicious personal insults in wrestling history. Number 10. Scott Steiner eviscerates Ric Flair. A really good personal insult, as you may have just seen, is one that targets someone's insecurities and misplaced pride. Ric Flair thought he was ageless he thought his time in the spotlight preserved him oldest ride longest line all that sort of thing but by the year 2000 he was not the picture of a world champion he thought he was he was tired aged haggard and scott steiner let him have it with both barrels and this is a man let's not forget who said this about stephanie mcmahon Now
0: it's worse because you know got one of the biggest cunts running it you know like stephanie mcmahon was with the you know about I now.
1: So yeah, as you may have guessed it, this is a guy who doesn't really give a toss what you think about him. What he thought about Ric Flair was that he had more loose skin than a Sharpe puppy, and once he said that, I could never unsee it, and told him that all the money he pissed away in his prime, maybe he should have saved some of it, maybe sold the jet, took a cab and fixed those crooked yellow teeth. And this is entry number 10. Number nine, Cody Rhodes burns Disco Inferno alive. Disco Inferno is a podcaster. And if you like podcasts, What Culture Wrestling, wherever you get your podcast from. But Anyway, Disco Inferno is a podcaster with one bad faith take. Everything remotely connected to all elite wrestling is crap. Basically, there are two reasons for this. Number one, anything that is ever remotely popular will always have a group of fans that dislike it no matter what. And when it comes to AEW, the WWE Vince cells are out in force, as you may have seen on social media. But I think the main reason for his dislike of AEW is the time in 2018 when Cody Rhodes buried him on Twitter. Basically what happened is Disco Inferno tweeted that nobody knows how to work anymore after a spot went wrong between Cody Rhodes and Kenny Omega resulting in Cody suffering a cut above his eyelid. Cody Rhodes responded to this tweet by Disco Inferno by saying Stop! You know nothing. You have drawn zero dollars. No fan has ever left a show thinking about you and you were lucky to be a juiced up double lifer over with the boys type in an area where you hid in plain sight coasting on others success couldn't hang then can't get booked now and there is not enough cry laugh emojis on twitter that can remove that stain Number eight, Mike Graham shakes his head at Jeff Jarrett's drawing ability. Jeff Jarrett is never truly appreciated as the fantastic Mid Card act he was because, well, he himself bristles at the notion and before Jarrett and WWE were on good terms Vince McMahon did the old DVD hatchet job on the former WCW star in the Rise and Fall of WCW akin to the Ultimate Warrior DVD debacle basically. Uh, There were reasons given in this DVD as to why we had the fall part of the Rise and Fall of WCW. Maybe it was because the NWO recruited too many members but they really focused in on the fact that Jeff Jarrett's ego was over-prioritized and that effectively killed the promotion. Now that may well be a bit of a stretch but it doesn't stop the fact that we got this absolute belter of a put down as a result of it from WCW road agent Mike Graham who said of Jarrett he drew 6,000 guitars and never drew a dime. It's not true that Jeff Jarrett single-handedly killed WCW doesn't stop that line being an absolute belter, though. Number seven, Bret Hart doesn't rate Triple H too highly. In an interview in 2013, Bret Hart was asked to give his thoughts on the Triple H versus The Undertaker match at WrestleMania 28, which, of course, went down inside hell in a cell. Now, subjectively for me, I thought that match was absolutely fantastic. There was a moment in that match where you thought, oh, well, I guess the streak's over then, because this is Triple H, this is Hell in a Cell, and he's just been super kicked into a goddamn pedigree. No one's kicking out of that. It was epic. Bret Hart didn't quite rate it as highly. When asked to give it a rating out of 10, he gave it 4. And 4 is just, it's so perfect there, isn't it? Six would have been a good sort of stinging response, only slightly above average for one of Triple H's best matches. Five's too bland. Three is too close to just outright crap matches. Four, basically, is Bret Hart saying that Triple H, he's so dull, he struggles even for competent mediocrity. And he had a few things to say about HPK as well. Number six, Bret Hart doesn't think much of Shawn Michaels either. Bret Hart's autobiography is one of the best wrestling books ever written. It is a genuinely intriguing, candid affair that is rich in detail, and where he talks about the vision of his craft. It's great! It's also piss-funny in segments where he tries to rip Shawn Michaels a new one. Look, I think it's fair to say that Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels didn't quite get on. And it was Shawn Michaels' obsession with being sexy that really rubbed Bret the wrong way. This whole boy toy image it didn't work for him. And in the book, he talks about Shawn Michaels as gyrating out there like the stripper he must have been in a previous life. That is objectively a tremendous put down, because effectively what he's saying there is he is more of a stripper than a pro wrestler, but hey, it's not his fault. He can't do anything about it. If you are more of a Shawn Michaels fan than a Bret Hart fan, Chances are I don't care for you as a person. Number five, MJF's cheap heat is money. MJF is the last of a dying breed. He is one of very, very few who knows how to get a very specific type of heat. He knows just which buttons to push. He said Cody Rhodes had a, sorry editor, t lisp. And he said Chris Jericho's titties were further apart than Shane McMahon's punches and their intended target. And sticking with Jericho, he also said that people shouldn't confuse the labours of Jericho with Chris Jericho being in labour. And then he turned his attention to Brian Pillman Jr. This was a basic undercard tv match and yet somehow he managed to extract the kind of heat and animosity normally reserved for major pay-per-view feuds it doesn't get much more personal when you're talking about another man's mother than rechristening her metheny and then saying that brian pillman jr was so useless that he was the one second generation wrestler his mum should have swallowed. I'm just really glad me and MJF are best mates, that's all. Number four, Paul Heyman shoots hard on Jerry Lawler. In 1993, Jerry Lawler was charged with statutory rape and sodomy. The charges were subsequently dropped and although there are conflicting reports as to what exactly happened on that day, the case is officially closed. No one can say that Jerry Lawler did the things that he was accused of. Well, unless you're Paul Heyman trying to build heat in the ECW versus Lawler rivalry on an episode of Monday Night Raw, in which case you can ask Lawler how he's doing at the seesaws in Louisville. And at this point, I've been informed by what Culture's lawyers to move rapidly on to the next entry because we don't want to touch this topic anymore. Well, other than. Number three, as does Doug Gilbert. Jerry Lawler willingly embraced the role of being the horny on main commentator throughout the Attitude Era. He welcomes jibes about the fact that he likes to date younger women. He said himself he's only embarrassed to be with a younger woman when they order Paschetti at the restaurant. Maybe he's okay with people taking the odds Hot shot at his lifestyle choices. He is effectively a card-carrying member of the if she were my daughter, I'd still be bath in her community. But maybe not as direct, uh, not even zinger, shot as you would expect from Doug Gilbert, who once said on Memphis Power Pro Wrestling, Jerry Lawler, you raped a little 13-year-old girl. Jerry Lawler took that one rather personally. The two have subsequently made up, but at the time, they fell out very badly indeed, as you would expect. Number 2. CM Punk uses a weapon Triple H couldn't. Picture this scene. Monday Night Raw ahead of SummerSlam at 2011 and we have a contract signing segment for the undisputed WWE title match between CM Punk and John Cena with Triple H and John Laurinaitis watching on. The verbal sparring between Punk and Cena is going on when Punk references the fact that he's spoken to a movie star who shares his views on John Cena and before he reveals it it is the rock of course he says don't worry Triple H I'm not talking about you in the chaperone because I mean what he's saying there is you're not really a star are you Triple H bristled at this remark and improvised how was your movie by the way I must have missed it and Punk with immaculate timing responds with oh mine went straight to DVD just like yours. You see, this was something that couldn't harm CM Punk, what really cut to the core of Triple H. Punk saw a film as a way of getting out of the European tour maybe even getting some time off TV. But Triple H desperately wanted to be on a similar footing to The Rock when it comes to going Hollywood. See Thor, for example, and knew in his heart of hearts that was never going to happen still though we'll always have blade trinity hey dick you see my dog number one the death of billy gunn's singles career various The Attitude Era, or what about the Attitude Era, was a cutthroat time. Yes, ambition was rewarded and there was a great deal of money to be made, but be careful out there. You didn't need to necessarily be a great artist, actually, to make yourself that popular. You just need to say the word ass a lot and have a good catchphrase. Enter Billy Gunn. The New Age Outlaws were ridiculously popular at their peak, but when that act became slightly tired, Gunn, as the ripped and outrageously tall member of the group, got the push. Yeah, it didn't pan out. And the reason it didn't pan out is there were two sharks who were circling, realising that this was not going the way that it had been planned, and they decided to go after Billy Gunn to get themselves over. Rock's 1999 assassination of Billy Gunn is legendary. From his intonation to the fact God, an omniscient being, let's not forget, was so unmoved by Billy Gunn he couldn't even be asked to know what his name was. And then two years after that classic... Edge took what was left of Gunn's corpse and buried it by promising not to Billy Gunn the King of the Ring title. I think I'd like to end here by reminding everyone, never, ever piss off a wrestler. Physically, they will destroy you, and verbally, they will eviscerate you.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.